Welcome to the School for Mystics podcast with Misha Seidel and Marina Galan. In this podcast, Marina and I will share with you unique and contrarian perspective of how our lives really work. Hello, Marina. Good morning, Misha. How are you today? I'm doing very, very well. What are we talking about today? Why are you doing very, very, very well? That is what we are talking about today. A few days ago, I've written in my Telegram channel. And the, the, the Telegram channel is like uh, Twitter in the US. And I wrote that as you grow up and you have all the success you need, all the money you need, all the material stuff, your thirst is quenched and there is no more reason for you to chase fame or money or anything like that. The only truth that remains in your life is your desire to find the truth. Okay. It keeps pushing you. It stays with you all the time. And every truth will lead you to a bigger truth. Okay. So can we break this down? Is that okay? Yeah. Tell me about the thirst. Because this is not the mystic thirst you were talking about. Absolutely. That's ego-driven chase. All right. What is the source of that? Your mind. Yes. Can you please say a little bit? Yes, of course. When I was growing up, the idea of the mind was an idea of a super powerful computer. It was created to calculate stuff and it was created to rationalize. But as I was, as I am getting older, I realized that our minds are not computers. They are receivers. Receivers of information. Correct. What do you mean? It's the perfect apparatus to receive and to operate on certain waves. You grow up in your family and you get exposed to thoughts in your family. And then you go to school and you get exposed to thoughts of hundreds of families and you watch TV and you get exposed to millions of thoughts of millions of people. And at the same time, there are also waves that you cannot necessarily recognize as words, but they are there as well. So your mind is receiving all of that and creates constructs. So it does not only receive, it creates as well. 
Yes, but it's interesting that when we talk about creation, very often we talk about creation from scratch. Like there was nothing before and now there is something. Our mind is more about what I call incremental innovation, which is there are a bunch of thoughts and our mind will put them together and suddenly it is a construct. I understand what you're saying. I am going to let you go on for a little while before I question what you just said. Cool. And one of the biggest constructs that we are creating is the birth of I. The moment we know the difference between here and there, now and after, and I and everyone else, the story is born. And this story will become incredibly complex mental construct. And this is what we call ego. Beautiful. So I would absolutely agree that it is the largest construct of them all. Is it the first one? Are you saying there is a prior to ego construct? I am asking. The way you're asking is like you are making a statement. <laughs> is it? Yes. <laughs> That's interesting that you would make up a statement from the way I am asking it. So tell me, what is the construct before I? I don't think there is one. I think there is. Okay, shoot. It is the construct of us before our eye is born. How can you have a construct of us before a construct of I? I didn't say that it is you who has the construct. So you see your parents will have a construct of you before you have developed your own I, your own identity. So you're not talking about the, the lifespan of a mind. You are talking about the, life, the, the lifespan of a society, of a group. Yes, yeah. Okay, so the construct, is, the construct of us, what you're saying, is fed. Correct. Is it possible to have an idea of us before having an idea of I? Because the way I see it, it kind of happens at the same time, but in a particular order. So as soon as there is a difference between I and the rest of the world, there is, a, there is an I, there is a not I, which we could call you. And then in that second, there is an us and a not us or Correct. them. Yes. Right? Yeah. So the story of I is always the first one. There you go. In our minds. Okay, cool. Yeah. So now I am going to question something you said. Please. Are you ready? Yes. Cool. What you are saying is that before the first construct, before I, there is nothing but being fed constructs. Yes? Is there nothing then before I, given that I is the first construct? 
Because what you said is our mind creates constructs. Yeah. And I, I would absolutely agree with that. Our rational mind creates constructs. Yes. But there must be something before construct because there is experience before construct. You cannot really say that a baby does not have experience before the construction of an identity. For sure, baby has an experience, but baby is not explaining the experience to itself before I. There you go. Right. Okay. So there is pure experience before I, which is what Sid Banks would say, experience before the contamination of personal fuck. Yes. Yes. Okay, cool. So our minds create experience before the construct, then create a construct and start, quote unquote, experiencing the experience through the construct. And that is what creates the story. And I agree to 80% of it. I am asking you. I am not I am yeah. not making a statement. <laughs> yeah, so I think that it is life that just goes and the experience is created after I is born. So baby experiences life as it as the life unveils. But the experience, especially the emotional experience is born and identified only with a birth of I. Yeah. It seems to me like we're getting, we we would be caught up in semantics. Yeah. If we go into that, because I think we we both are pointing to the exact same thing. There is pure experience, and then there is identity, and then there is personal experience. So So, I have a question. Hold on, hold on. I have a question. Okay. <laughs> Do you think it's possible to have pure experience ever again after the construct? Oh yes, I do. I I believe it's possible. How? And I am lucky to have experienced that without I. Cool. <laughs> I can't say that I can't say that happened many times, but that was the moment when I realized I know nothing about life, when that happened to me. It was like such a beautiful and pure moment. And that happened fairly recently, maybe a few years back. Sounds like absolute freedom. Absolute freedom, absolute joy, and also absolute clarity. Beautiful. Yeah, freedom from mind. Would you be willing to share more about that now or after you say whatever you were going to say? Yeah, we can discuss that as well. You know what is the problem of that experience? I don't know how exactly that happened. It was just I literally woken up and something happened. Uh-huh. But once you experience that, you you become absolutely different person. 
like everything you believed before, all the constructs, they were destroyed in a moment. So I wish I knew what are the steps or what kind of like, okay, if you follow this map, you get to experience this. But also what you can do once you experience that, now you can train your mind to shut the fuck up. <laughs> train your mind to shut up. Because once you experience, you know how it feels and you know when it's right and when it's not. So again, you know, in parentheses, right and wrong. Once you know how the truth feels, you know when something is off. I like the idea of experiencing it again, but I am not sure whether I, as the construct, can actually reproduce it. Absolutely, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so I can call this moment an I knockout. Right, so it cannot be reproduced by I. Yes, so but it happened I, without I. Right, but is there a way, because I have, I have wondered about this for a while, and uh, I have a few <laughs> ideas about it. Is it possible, Misha, that I, or the ego serves enlightenment. For so sure. Is it, is it possible to put the ego at the service of enlightenment? And this is what generally happens. Right. E ego helps you to get to enlightenment for its own sake until it, until it realizes that enlightenment means death of ego. There you go. And then it gets really afraid. <laughs> it gets scared as hell. I agree. So in a way, is it, is it about... Because it's paradoxical. Like, it's what the ego actually wants. wants. Yes. But it does not know that it implies its own... Yes, yes. ...dissolution. Yes. Right? And so is it possible to calm it down? Let's put it that way. Like, let it not be afraid and have it somehow understand that it then becomes a, an offering. It makes an offering of itself in exchange for truth, in exchange for yeah. enlightenment. You see, I don't think you have to negotiate. The language of ego is the language of thoughts, images and phrases. But your drive towards dissolution of ego is something divine. You don't have to negotiate. Truth doesn't need compromises. I like that. I like that. But at the same time, you can love yourself through the whole process. You can love your ego and you can be compassionate towards yourself, right? Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah. I like that because it's not against it. It cannot be. Everything is integrated in love, but everything dissolves in love. Yeah. 
And I like the fact that you that you say, I don't know how it happened. So I cannot talk about that. <laughs> but I can try to describe the experience, even though I know I will not do it justice. Yeah, I remember myself, it, it was winter and it, it was fairly cold. And I'm that kind of person that actually hates when it's cold. Really? Yeah, I I like when it's warm. I like sunny places. And I hate Canadian winters. So I used to. I used to. And I remember myself walking home and feeling the chilly wind and realizing that, oh, wow, it is just vibration. And having no content about it whatsoever. And once you don't have content to it, there is nothing to hate anymore. So pure experience again. Yeah, just pure experience. And like you, you feel like your skin feels it. And you feel like your toes feel it. And you're like, oh, I'm curious how it feels because this is the first time in my life I, I'm really feeling that. It's just kind of crazy. And I love that day so much and I'm so grateful it has happened to me because I know many people who has never experienced that in their lives, who has never experienced freedom from mind. And now you love winter. I'm okay with that. Let's put it this way. <laughs> I'm okay with that. So can I share the breakthrough that happened uh, recently? Please. So this is the breakthrough in my understanding of thought and emotions. The point where I think you and I agree is that thought creates emotion. What I realized, it is not the thought that creates emotion. It is resistance to it that creates emotion. Define resistance. Let's say I, yesterday I, I tried to uh, to make 12 pull-ups, okay? Now, it feels like it was not very easy for me. <laughs> to be honest, after number five... <laughs> <laughs> I'm with you, man, I'm with you. Yeah, I felt like, okay, probably it is not going to happen. Once I was done with that struggle, the thought in my mind was, I am not as strong as I used to be. And I felt grief for my younger self. Okay. And then I started thinking, okay, why actually I, I, I feel that way? Let's say if someone else thinks I'm not strong as I used to be, or I'm not as strong as I used to be, will, that, will they feel grief? Will they feel irritation? 
will they feel like what exactly they're going to feel maybe someone will just shrug their shoulders and like mm, shrug and move on and i realized it is not the thought that i am not as strong as i used to be that creates the emotion it is my rule or my idea that i should be strong that resists the thought i'm not as strong as i used to be so i have this rule for myself about who i am and who i need to be and when i have the thought that contradicts there is the resistance and that feels like emotion you see every emotion is just vibration once you see two energies and thoughts are energies as well once you see these two thoughts collapse they create like big bang which is an emotion would attachment be a form of resistance for sure because you don't want to lose it and sometimes you know you need to lose it right So I was I was reading a couple of days ago about um Buddhism and how in Buddhism they understand that you can judge or react to circumstances and thoughts and feelings in three different ways. So you have rejection, attachment or neutrality. But in reality there's just either neutrality or not neutrality. Yes. Right? And so not neutrality is what causes emotion. Yes. So from the understanding of the principles as as explained by Sid Banks, pure thought is always neutral. Yes. And it is our and here we go again, personal thinking which is always judgment that creates emotion. Yeah. Right? So yeah, thought as the principle it creates experience but not judgment per se. Judgment is a process of the rational mind. Right? Yeah. We go to the scriptures. I don't know why I'm going to the scriptures today. Okay. <laughs> If we go to the scriptures, you'll find that it says you shall not eat from the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil which ends up being judgment yes so what what the scripture is trying to point us to is the fact that when we judge we take ourselves out of the garden we take ourselves out of the possibility of enjoying what is of being present of experiencing neutrality towards everything and allowing which is the language of love in the end right but it it was never meant to be oh if you eat this fruit i will cast you out no this is not a vengeance or a punishment or anything this is just explaining how we operate Yeah. Right? And so as mother mother Teresa used to say, when I judge people, I have no time to love them. Which is to say, in any given moment I am either in love 
or in judgment, which goes to say I am either in paradise or in hell, right? In the garden or outside of it. So the loss of innocence, what is what that is pointing to, the idea of a loss of innocence, is precisely the moment of judgment of what is, regardless of whether it is circumstance, thought, or emotion. And you know what you're pointing to, that resistance thing. We have resistance to thought, but we all also have resistance to emotion, right? For sure, yeah. I should not be feeling this way about that. And so it's an, it's an endless ongoing process which we cannot prevent and we cannot stop, but we can observe and become conscious of and learn from it. Yes. I love that you're saying also resistance to emotions because the only way to intensify your emotion is to resist. <laughs> It's true. Yeah, like you want to create more energy, more vibration in your body. Sure, you resist to your emotion. You want your thought to feel intensely in your body. Go ahead and resist the thought. Because this is in the first place what creates emotion in your body is the idea of rejection or attachment. Yeah. In this Buddhist readings that I was that I was doing, <laughs> I found this really cool metaphor that said if you have a lion and a dog, you know, to your sides, and you throw a stick, the dog will follow the stick. And the lion will turn around to see where the stick came from. Hmm. Right? So I love, I love the metaphor of the rational mind and the intuitive mind in which the rational mind will just follow the thought or follow the emotion, you know, and just go with it. Whereas the awakened mind or the intuitive mind will look to the source of it to try to understand. Yeah. It will not get lost in content. It will just look at the process. You know how academia calls it no. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I know that you could not care more about that or less um, <laughs> they call it cognition about cognition huh. or, or thinking about thinking or another way and I'm probably increasing or expanding your vocabulary today is metacognition All right, how about meta-consciousness? I like that. Yes, and that's consciousness about consciousness, right? That's right. right. So, yeah. Because cognition has to do with the concept. It has to do with the stick. So let, let's, let's go into meta-consciousness. Yeah, and we discussed meta-consciousness a few times in our episodes here and there. How do you... Let me step back. And I was going to challenge you on that today, so I'm going to bring it up anyways. Uh, here we go. Okay. Okay. So you know what is still really hard for my small mind to understand, for my small human mind to understand, is the idea of universal consciousness, 
and personal consciousness. Yeah. But I'm getting better. I, and this is about my second breakthrough that happened to me after this idea of thought creates emotion as resistance. Another idea was if I can be conscious about my own consciousness, I can be conscious about your consciousness. And this is the same. And this is all one. So if I, if I can see the operator behind your agent, and if I can see my operator behind me, I realize that we have the same operator. Yes, sir. <laughs> okay, can you now unpack that for, uh, for people to understand? I can try. <laughs> Please. <laughs> you know how we're talking about the lion and the dog and how they look back, and that seems to be a spatial concept, you know, in, in, yes. in space. But when we talk about the baby and the creation of the construct and I, we talk about seeing before in terms of time. Yes? Okay. Yeah. We are not really talking about the source in terms of time or in terms of space. Yes. We are talking about the source in terms of origin. But the origin is not found in time and space. It is found right now because experience and thought and emotion are happening right now. So the source that, had, that is bringing them to life right now cannot be in the past and cannot be anywhere else. So we are not really looking anywhere except inside, which is what we find in every single tradition, including the mystic one. But what does inside mean? when we tend to think of it in terms of, again, space, space, right? Inside my body, inside my. But we are not trying to look at that. We are trying to look at the most intimate part of ourselves, right? So if you, if you think about the Big Bang, right? The origin is the center of it all. The Big Bang did not happen. It is happening now. So it still has that intimate center. It is present right now, as it is present in us right now. And the source of our experience, of our thinking, of our emotion is right there. Now, of course, we only have words for this. And so we go to metaphors. <laughs> yes. Mm -hmm. if, if I were to choose a metaphor to speak about this, I would go, I would go for the mystics again, the ocean, right? So the most intimate part of the wave is the ocean. If you go deep inside the wave, you will only find ocean. But no matter where you go in the wave, you will find ocean. Mm -hmm. Right? It's just that the deep ocean helps you understand that the wave is just a manifestation of that ocean as it is right now. 
And every wave is a manifestation of that ocean as it is right now. And so we can have endless waves, big waves, small waves, with a lot of foam, with very little foam, you know, peaceful waves, unpeaceful waves, however you want to call them. That is the world of judgment. They are all springing from the very source of it all. Another metaphor for this is the diamond, right? So we have endless faces of a diamond, but we have one diamond. Yeah. So you can look at one face and find it, I don't know, large, shiny, whatever you want, or small or crooked or whatever. But we are talking about one diamond. A few days ago, um, I had to give a talk on universal mind, which is exactly what we're talking about, right? <laughs> and um, the night before giving that talk, I went for a walk with one of my sons. And he asked me, how are you going to explain it? I said, I don't really know. How would you explain it? And he said, well, it's so simple that it's really complicated because it is so evident that you miss it. It is everything in everything and behind everything. But we can only see the things. We can never see what is behind them, what is inside them. So it's like one thing that has many faces, many, and he used these words, costumes, many disguises, so that you can see a tree or an animal or a wave or a cloud or the wind, but it's all just one disguising itself as many right now. Is he applying for a Nobel Prize? <laughs> I, I, I will let him know that he can now and then he will have your support. Yes. <laughs> I don't know. Am I, am I making sense, Misha? Yeah. You know, I have a question. I'm playing for a while with this idea of useful knowledge and information. For example, I know that if you cut warm, you know, in the middle, you will not kill the worm. The worm will regenerate its body. Okay. Is this an information or useful knowledge for me? For me, for personally myself, it's an information because there is nothing I can do with it. I'm not going to cut worms out there. And no, uh, you never know. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, I'm not, you know, someone working in uh, the sector of agriculture or anything like that. So for me, it's not useful knowledge. In one of the um, schools of therapy I respect that is called ACT therapy. It is one of the third wave 
cognition therapies that were created recently. They are talking about this idea of not seeking the truth in thoughts, but trying to find the thought that will help you. So again, we're back to this idea of useful knowledge. If I know that there is universal consciousness, if I know that there is ocean behind the waves, how exactly that helps me live my life better? Well, I think there are endless ways to answer that. But I will go with this one. I think one of the, it seems to me that one of the ways in which we get ourselves into trouble big time is by believing that we are alone. And from that comes comparison. And from that comes having to be better than the other. And from that comes envy. And from that comes so much. When we understand that we are just part of one, we naturally become more compassionate, more loving, more caring, and more kind. Mm. I, <clears throat> I remember a beautiful story called The Egg by Andy Weir. And uh, I think you should go and read it right after you stop listening to this. He read it. Oh, God. So I think everybody should go and read it when you stop listening to this. But after reading that story, whenever um, my kids and I would go to places with a lot of people, you know, like, I don't know, amusement parks or malls or cinemas, I would invite them to play the game of, okay, Everyone you will meet today is you wearing a mask. Or, you know, it's, it's you wearing a disguise. And I would then observe how that game, that idea, would change their behavior towards others. And how they became way more tolerant, way more kind way more curious about the other. And they really started minding a general well-being versus a personal well-being. I hope that is useful knowledge for you. <laughs> you remember that? Like, what about others? There are no others. Exactly. Yeah. Maharshi. How should we treat others? And the answer was, there were, there are no others. Yeah, I love the egg. And by the way, for someone who doesn't want to read the book, there is a short story. It's a tiny, tiny. It's tiny, but you can do it even faster. So there is the short movie by uh, Kurgesagt on YouTube. Really? And I think they call it the egg. And you just you're, you're so gonna have to send me that link like right yeah. 
it's really good. Like I love it. I love everything that Kurgizak does. It's really, really good. Good. Wonderful. Please do send it to me. Yeah. By the way, first I watched the uh, the video clip and then I went to read the book. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So let's transition, Marina, from breakthroughs in understanding to breakthroughs in life. Okay. I'm not sure I understand what you mean, but okay. <laughs> so there is one thing that stuck with me from one of our episodes. And I was thinking about that for at least 20 minutes <laughs> or maybe the whole day. You, we, I, I remind you, you and I, we were discussing what it is to live spectacular life. Yes. And the standards of living. And you mentioned that one of the things that you think are is spectacular is learning how to sing. Yes. And I was so on board with you. Like, I was so on the same page. I'm like, yes, exactly. This is what makes your life spectacular. And I'm like, ah, I wish my musical sense was better than it is now and blah, blah, blah. But then I realized what is spectacular for me. And for me, the radio show is spectacular. For me too. <laughs> yeah. So, and then I realized that skiing on mountains is spectacular for me. Oh, yeah. I'm with you on that one as well. So I wonder... What do we really need to start having these breakthroughs? Because this is breakthrough. Realizing, like looking at your calendar and realizing, oh, fuck, every day is freaking spectacular. It's like filled with activities that you are enjoying so much. And today, with one of my students, I had this conversation and she asked, Hey, I have a calendar and I have all these tasks in my calendar and I just don't do them. Like I put these tasks into my calendar and when the time comes, comes, I'm like, fuck it. I'm not doing it. Oh. And she's like, oh, can you coach me on that? And the question was, why would you put something you hate in your calendar? <laughs> why would you do that to yourself in the first place? Right? So, Marina, teach us the transition to spectacular calendar. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, it's really simple. You realize <laughs> what you enjoy and then you fill up your calendar. <laughs> but how about, okay, but I have uh, this and that obligation and I need to make money and uh, I need to be responsible and I need to do this and that, like, how about that? Well, what you're pointing to, Misha, is the difference between... <laughs> Here it goes. Are you ready? The difference between doing what you love and loving what you do. Yes. Yes. And so I like how this is going to actually 
link us back to where we started. Our experience of hating something we do has to do with our judgment of it, yeah. our resistance to it, not it itself. Yes, 100%. I agree with you. Now, when we... I, was I read a quote by David Baum recently that said that for a real dialogue to happen, each part needs to put away its certainty for a little while. Otherwise, it's not a dialogue. So if you want to enter a dialogue with life, it is required that you live your certainty aside for a little while and expose yourself to it again and discover again a new way to experience it without that certainty, that judgment. I am looking out my window and I'm, I am seeing a palm tree. And I know that I usually experience palm trees a certain way, right? And I could tell you a story of, yes, uh, my grandmother used to dress up as a palm tree to scare me when I was little. And that is why I experienced it that way. Or I could tell you a beautiful story. Oh, I remember the palm trees in my vacation with my parents when I was little and it was so beautiful. And so the remembrances give me this experience. The truth is that that experience is not coming from the palm tree. It's coming from the judgment of the story. Mm -hmm. But every experience that any human being has ever had or will ever have or could ever have of a palm tree is potentially mine. If I put my certainty aside and I expose myself again to the palm tree, and I discover what a palm tree feels like today. That way, you are actually living in relationship with the palm tree, not with your certainty, not with your concept. And life becomes wonderful and miraculous. Yes. This is how children live. And that is why they want you to tell them the story over and over and over again. And they want to see the film over and over and over again. And they want to see the caterpillar again and again and again. Because they are engaging with the story, the film, the caterpillar. Not their concept of it. And I like to think <sighs> that the universal energy behind life really understands this because it just keeps creating daisies you know like we've seen all the daisies we could see they're not that different from each other yes. but it's like yes let's do it again you know it's, there's just so much excitement in the idea of let's do it again let's see what this can feel like again yeah and that is how you do it so true. I come home and I see that uh, there is there is a mess under our mailbox and the papers are all over the place. And I don't know, maybe it, it was wind or it was sloppy postman or why why that happened. And 
I realize that right now, in this moment, I have a choice. One choice is to collect all the garbage, all the papers, and think, oh my God, I hate this postman, and my neighbors are not great, and why am I the only one who is cleaning that mess? Or I can pass through neutral and enjoy every second of this experience. Oh, this is how this particular paper feels like. The neutral again. Here we go. Yes. So the idea of passing through neutral and being curious to what you're going to feel and what you're going to experience in this moment right now. And what I promise to everyone, if you just give a chance to experience the moment and pass it through neutral, I promise you're going to enjoy it anyways. Absolutely. Because you will not have a single moment that will be equal to any other moment because none is for sure you have never experienced this moment it's brand new yes it is it is brand new and you are the new person experiences this new moment absolutely awesome thank you marina for today that is the invitation Misha. it is as always <laughs> wonderful thank you see you soon see you soon bye Thank you for listening to the School for Mystics podcast.